0: following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, uh, good morning and good to see everybody, and welcome back. If you're new with us, welcome to Holy Cross. It's, it's just really great to see you, and my name's Pete, and I'm a pastor here, and just wanted to welcome you. Um, well, this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, is probably the most well-known chapters in all of Scripture, at least among the top three it's referenced in weddings, and greeting cards, and movies, and it's been referenced in non-religious ceremonies and non-religious contexts. It's the love chapter. I mean, this is the love chapter. First Corinthians 13, we know this passage. You don't have to be in the church for a long time to even hear these words that are spoken. And chapter 13 and the issue of sincere love finds itself in the context of a series of arguments that Paul is constructing to encourage, to lead, to guide these people in the city called Corinth at the Corinthian church. Chapter 12 uh, starts out, it talks about the work of the Spirit in an individual's life. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Halfway through 12, he switches and talks about the implications of the Holy Spirit's work on the life of, of the church and the body of collectively, of people coming together and worshiping God. And then he ends with this sentence in chapter 12 he says and i will show you still a more excellent way he's about to tell his readers and us a clear and defining work of the holy spirit is love and i don't think there's anyone sitting here today thinking love christian tell me more i've never heard those two words put together in such a way we get that it's a word it's a buzzword in christianity love It's a buzzword in our culture, love. We need to love other people. It's not a foreign word to us, but the true concept is so easily lost. And so let's have open ears and open hearts to receive what God wants to teach us today about love. Paul will teach his friends in Corinth about love and its message that is so timeless and so relevant to people 2,000 years ago and yet so timeless and relevant to us today. And the first, verses are gonna, first three verses are going to teach us about the necessity of love. We see in this passage there are three basic structures. He constructs this argument very well, and there's three basic things he wants to tell them. The first is the necessity of love. And if you're sitting in Corinth and you're reading this letter that was being read out loud to you, that's probably how it was. They were sitting down, and someone was reading the letter that Paul had written to them. And you're about to, you're, you're dozing off. You're late in the day. I mean, he's gone through you know, so many different things, and so you're, just, you're feeling weighed down, you're feeling burdened, and you're starting to get sleepy. And the reader gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you're going to wake up. Your eyes are going to open. You're going to pay attention. And I want you to think of it this way. Paul uses an analogy of a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal in that first verse. And he, better than most people, was so familiar with The Jewish cult, the Jewish ritual, the secular cult in the time of Corinth. He was familiar with the kinds of instruments that would be used in these cults. See, you could be walking down the street and Corinth was a city where it was lined with different temples, different um, idol places of worship, uh, different cults. And you would be hearing them sing and you'd hear them use different instruments to worship their god. And the gong and a cymbal were instruments that you could hear as you walked down the streets, as people were worshiping and chanting. They were distinct sounds and easily identifiable to belong to the cult, the secular, the pagan. And without love, Paul is saying, without love, you are no different than any of those people. Without love, there is no distinguishing feature about you that would separate you from from someone down the street, from someone in a cult, someone who's worshiping a mute and idle God. Do you remember that movie, The Sandlot? Many of you, I'm sure, do. I see some smiles and so you like it. It's one of those great feel-good movies for for any young boy or even young girl. They're watching that and it's a story of these teenage or adolescent boys in the summer. They play baseball and... There's this scene in particular where they're out there playing and practicing together. They're playing on this, on the sand lot. It's not an admirable field. It's a baseball field that is has very dried out and dusty ground. The grass is really spotty. It's right in front of like a, a a junkyard with this really dangerous dog. They don't have uniforms. They don't have a team name. They're just a bunch of boys going out and playing every day in the summer. And in the middle of their play, you remember this scene where there's this team, this other team from the other side of town, who rides up on their really nice, shiny bicycles. And you know right away that they, these kids are different. These boys are different. They're the, they're the preppies. They're the snobs. I mean, their hair is perfect. Their clothes are perfect. They have a beautiful, pristine field that they play on. They're the rich kids. They have uniforms. They have a name. And they're casting insults back and forth at one another. The team leaders on each team are, are insulting one another, but nothing is really landing And then the ringleader from the Sandlot Gang, do you remember what he says? And this is a stopper. He says, You play ball like a girl. (laughs) The insults stop. You know, he he got his attention. He woke him up. For a 13-year-old boy, I mean, for some of you, that might be a compliment. Like, that's an upgrade for me, to play ball like a girl. But for these boys, where baseball was their life, where it was their living and breathing, and the, and the worst thing that you could tell a 13-year-old boy who loved baseball was you play ball like a girl. What's the worst thing that you can say to a follower of Jesus whose identity is in Christ, whose loyalty is in Christ, who, whose love is for Christ? What's the worst thing you could tell them? Maybe something like this. You know, looking at you, I would have never guessed in a million years that you follow Jesus. That you know Jesus. Looking at your love and how you love other people, I would have never guessed. Oh, man. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a conversation stopper. Paul is saying that to them. When I see you love one another, you're like a... a a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You're not distinguished from anybody else around the street corner that's worshiping other gods and a part of other religions. I would have never guessed that you belong to Christ. What is the most important thing that you need to do this week? Think about it. What's the most important thing on your list of things to do? You may be thinking, oh, I see where he's going with this. He wants me to think about my responsibilities. And he's going to tell me, no, the most important thing for you to do is to love. I'm not going there. The most important thing for you to do this week is to breathe. To breathe. Because think about it. If you're not breathing, then everything else on your list is useless. If you don't breathe, then even the things you should do, you're not going to be able to do. Because you're not breathing. Without breathing, it doesn't matter what's important. It doesn't matter what is right. All those things on your list are nothing. And Paul uses these exaggerated circumstances to drive home that point. To that How necessary is love in the life of a Christian? He, talks, he says, if you talk like an angel, if you have this speech and tongue that is so eloquent, that reveals so many wonderful things that you don't even... You don't stutter. You don't skip a beat. You're so, it's like velvet pouring out of your mouth of God's truth. Even if you speak like an angel, it is worthless without love. He says, if you understand all mysteries. Now, it's, it's like a person that if I asked you any single question about any topic, you would know the answer and you would know it so well about anything. There is nothing that you don't know. Paul's saying, even if you met a person like that that had not love, it is worthless. If you can move mountains with your faith, if you can tell your faith is so strong that you could tell a mountain, go jump in the ocean. That's pretty amazing. But if you have not love, it is nothing. Paul, how important is love in the life of a Christian? It is like breathing. That's what he would say. It is like breathing. Now, there is little, if any, division on that topic, I mean, what we just said. You ask anybody, they don't even have to be a Christian, you can ask anybody and say, is love important? They would say, absolutely, it is necessary, it is critical to the life of a person. Love is so important. Every, you, can, you can look at so many different religions and there's this shared sentiment or belief that love is important, to love others is necessary for us. Outside of the church, people look into the church and say, that's a problem, that's why I feel discouraged, because I look at the church and I don't see that they're loving one another. A husband might say to his wife, I don't feel like you love me, and vice versa. You might say that to your neighbors or your roommates or your coworkers. I don't feel like there's love. We understand that love is important. And the tension in our life doesn't arise when, about, uh, among the issue of, is love important or is it not important? But the tension begins when we start to ask the question, okay, what does love look like then? What is love? What is not love? How does it function? What's a, what's a portrait of love look like? And how do I love? You see, that question will start wars. That question will divide friends and families and churches. On how people answer that question. Not the question of is love important? Yes, it is. But what does it mean to love? That's where it gets difficult. And so Paul, being this great pastor that he is to his church, and Christ being the great shepherd that he is to us, he tells us. He gives us the character of love, the portrait of love. This is what it means to love. This is what love really looks like. And so verses 4 through 7 deal with the character of love. When I was a, a sophomore at the U of A, I took my girlfriend at the time to the Arizona Theater Company to see the Broadway play, My Fair Lady. All right. See, if you missed the Sandlot analogy, then I'm going to try to fi- fix it with the My Fair Lady analogy. Now, Eliza was a girl who's taken in by a professor, right? She's this girl, just a flower girl, kind of a, a nobody or whatever, and, and, and he has this project. He's going to make her into this, this, this socialite, this sophisticated, classy woman. And Freddie is this romantic, really. Freddie is this boy who's enamored with her. He, he loves her. He, he writes to her two or three times a day, love letters. He walks on her street, and he feels so blessed in, just to be on the street where, where she lives. It's a song in the, in the play. And he's just so, he's so filled with romance. The thought of her makes him feel warm. He writes to her and tells her how much he loves her. But he's always afraid, you know, even the, even the doorkeeper comes out as she sees him walking on the street and says, do you want to come in and say hello? He's like, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly do that. I'd just rather, just, I'd just rather feel good just being on the street where she lives. He's a stalker, really. <laughs> that's, a, that's who Freddie is. He's a stalker. He's overpowered with emotion just by the thought of being in the same city as her and staring at her house. He's He loves her. He tells her he loves her numerous times a day. But one day he does catch her walking out of the doorway to the front of her building. And he has the courage to tell her how he feels. And he starts to sing. He begins to sing about his undying love and she interrupts him mid-sentence. And she says, words, words, words. I'm sick of your words. If you're in love, show me. If you're on fire show me. Don't talk about love, show me. Don't explain to me how about your arms have longed for mine. Show me. And it was right then and there that I knew that my relationship with that girl was over. <laughs> <laughs> it was was not going to last and in fact it did not. It was over like a week later. But I did start dating her roommate and married her, so that worked out. <laughs> because I knew no one, and it wasn't her, it was me. It's not you, it's me. No one ever taught me about this. No one ever taught me that love is not just this feeling inside of you, that love is not just this emotion, That is not just this, this romance, that it's not these tingles and these warm feelings, that it was more than a want or an impulse or a lust. It was, it was more than even a, a comfort of companionship. That love was so much more than that, and I knew that I didn't know, and I thought, she's going to find me out. I cannot deliver on this. What a horrible play to take a girlfriend to when you don't know how to love. If you were to ask somebody, I've asked this to many people, it's, you know, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, I've done weddings, and it's, it's such a joy for me. I've, I've met with a lot of people, and I've asked, why do you love her? Why do you love this person? They say things like, well, and you've, you've seen this, you've seen it on TV, you've seen it in songs, you've, you've seen people give answers like this, I just couldn't imagine my life without her. You know, that's not love, that's loneliness. You're not in love, you're afraid of being alone. You're, you're, you're afraid of being alone and you're also smart and so you realize you can't get anybody better and she's the only one that will tolerate you. you can be still in love and 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 not want to be without that person i'm not saying that but that is not the essence of love of just wanting that person in your life love is primarily an action dc talk told me that in the nineties <laughs> love is a verb words come easy but don't mean much you could finish the rest if you want the soap on a rope but it ain't worth hoping no okay <laughs> Copen. someone else knows the words okay <laughs> love is patient and kind it's actively kind it does not envy real love arises out of right it rises above petty things it rises above petty things and it is generous it is not superficial in the way that it treats others Sometimes the greatest advice that you can give somebody if they're struggling with loving their their spouse or their friend is to consider the most elementary of all Christian virtues kindness. Love is kind. Just be kind. Think about what you're doing and ask yourself is this kind? You can teach a child that. Be kind, be patient. Love does not envy, he says. It's not motivated by rivalry. It's not motivated by the things that you do not have that you want. Love does not boast. It's not self centered. Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up and self righteous. It's not selfish. It's not thinking of one's own needs only. Love is not rude, Paul says. Literally, this word, I love it. It says, literally, love is not socially disgraceful in the presence of others. Love does not embarrass your friends. Love thinks about your actions, and how will this affect the people around me? That's what love looks like. It considers how your actions will affect other people. Love is, does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's willing to give up its rights and privileges for another person. Love is not irritable. It's not hot-tempered. It's It can control his or her emotions. If you blow your top easily, even if you're right, you're not loving. If you go off the cuff and and explode, you are not loving. Love is not resentful. To resent someone is to keep a list in your heart of the wrongdoings for the purpose of bringing that up in the future or directing your future actions towards that person. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. I was asked by someone generally, genuinely, they said, if you disagreed with someone, you would never tell them that, right? Because you're a pastor. I said, of course I would. Of course I would. Why? Because that's loving. Because it's unloving to see someone rejoicing in wrongdoing and say, well, tomato, tomato, we can still be friends, we can still love one another, we just won't get on each other's toes. No. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth, Paul says. It celebrates when righteousness is pursued, when obedience is embraced. Then he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ceases to have this rock-solid faith and hope that God can do anything. Anything. To love someone is to say we will never give up no matter how messy it is. Man, doesn't this description and character and portrait of love make it seem so shallow for how love is depicted today? Barely even scratch the surface for how love is depicted today for what it really is we see that it's, it's a feeling that comes and goes it's it's not hurting someone else's feelings that's love it's someone saying well i fell out of love love is not a hammock that you can fall out of love is something that we choose to do love is a covenant of commitment Before we get into the final verses and our last point, I just want to pause and just ask: You know, how can we apply that uh, up to this point? How can we apply that portrait of love that God has given us? You know, look at who Paul is writing this to, because that's important to start. He's writing this to the church. You know, he's not writing it just to, to married couples. He's not writing it to engaged people. He's not, he's not writing it to people that are romantically involved. It includes that. He's writing it to the church. He's writing it to a group of people who are different. And they're on the edge of breaking fellowship over so many things. When we read this passage and think about love, we should first and foremost think we should see faces. We should see people come to our mind. We should see faces in our, in our eye. How do we apply this? Think of people, real life, warm-blooded people in your life. There are people who annoy you, who let you down, who hurt you, who betray you. The hard reality is you might be one of those people doing that to somebody else. And you are in need of their love. We are all there at some point in our life. And it's easier and quicker to say, I need to go to another church. I need to find new friends. I need to move out of my neighborhood. And what you really need is to find a place where humans don't exist. (laughs) What the church needs are people that are devoted and committed to learning to love well. Start by applying this passage to the people in your life right now, the people in your influence, the people in your living under the same roof, the people sharing the same street. You will not be sorry because here's what Paul has to tell us about love as we close up. Love is permanent. Love never ends. Third point is the permanence of love. He wants us to know the permanence of love. It never ends. Compared to love compared to real love, everything else that you are good at will fade away. Isn't that crazy? That's what Paul's trying to say. Even the really good things, even the things that are the gift of the Spirit, the spiritual gifts that build up a body, that encourage people, the things that you are good at uniquely will not last forever. And we don't invest our lives in things that pass away, that would be foolish. I remember watching this documentary on, on Egypt and the kings, the pharaohs of Egypt, and they came to King Tut. You know that name. We all know King Tut in some way, even a little bit, we know. And they were talking about the, what was so wonderful about King Tut and special that when they got into his tomb and they amassed all the treasures that, was, that were in his grave, the treasures alone that were in this one pharaoh's grave, outnumbered and outweighed all of the other pharaohs that have ever been discovered, put together. All of the treasures of Egypt didn't even match up to the treasure that was in this one man's grave. And I thought, wow. What a waste. And we will never waste because love is permanent. We will never waste When we choose to love somebody. We will never waste loving somebody. Even if they don't change. Even if they don't reciprocate. Even if they don't say, wow, thank you for loving me. Even if they don't even know that we love them. We will never waste effort put to love another person. And the day is going to come when you and I see Jesus... Face to face. Man. And there's going to be a huge difference between how you see him now and how you see him when you're face to face. You know, Paul says we see him, but we see him through a dimly through a looking glass, through a clouded window, through a, a foggy haze. We see him, but we don't see him clearly. But a time is coming when you, he will be perfect, and you will see him, that veil, that haze, that cloud will be lifted, and you will see him clearly. And the Son of God will shine so brightly. His love will shine so brightly, there will be no shadow cast on all the earth. There will be no shadow. That's how bright it will be. You see, the sun is bright, but it comes out, but there's still shadow. It is bright and powerful and warm, but it still casts a shadow because it can't fill everything all at the same time. And the Bible tells us when Christ comes, he will be so bright, that nothing will be uncovered. No shadow will be cast. We will see him so clearly. And right now, we are in the state of, of infancy, really, in a way. And that's what Paul tells us, that we see like infants. And when we see him face to face, he'll be so bright. And you think, everybody loves, every religion loves, every religion speaks of the necessity of love and how this how is this different? What does it mean to be, what, how is the love of God the love of Christ, different than the love that, that everybody else talks about. Because I can love. I mean, I don't have to be a Christian to love somebody. Have you ever taken a flashlight outside in the broad daylight when the sun is, is straight up in the sky, and there's not a cloud in the sky, and you take a flashlight on and you turn it on, and you try to see if it's on or not, and you put your hand and you can't really tell? And you're like, the only way I can tell if this is bright and if it's on is if I go in the darkness and turn it on. When Christ comes and we see him face to face, everything else is going to be like that flashlight. That it's casting a light of some sort, but in the light of Christ, it is so dim. It is so useless. It, does, it is of no value. There may be value to it today, and that's because we, we don't see things as they really are. What will last forever is the love of God poured out in Jesus Christ. We should read this chapter and all of all the other chapters of Scripture is seeing this, seeing a story that is, seeing the Bible is not just this story about us, and it's not a story just about man. It is a story about the love of God poured out in Jesus Christ. It is about the permanence of love. It is about this deep love that we have only barely scratched the surface of knowing. A Christian should read this and see, hasn't God been patient with me? Look at all that I've done and he hasn't punished me for. Hasn't God been kind to me? Hasn't God forgiven me? Hasn't God laid down his rights for us and not claim them as his own and said, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, live with it. Hasn't he laid down his life for us? Hasn't God thrown out the record books of all that we've done wrong? Hasn't God rejoiced with us when we pursue faith? Hasn't God been consistent with us in communicating what is wrong and what is right? Aren't you glad that God expresses himself in Jesus Christ this way? Aren't you glad that God loves you this way? We should look at this and say, I'm glad that God loves me this way. And this love is for us. It is true love because the only way that that's possible, how can we receive this love from God that is patient and kind and unending and selfless? Because Jesus endured all pain, all punishment, all the shame on the cross that we deserved, he endured it on himself, so that we can know this kind of love. That is God. This list is not possible without God first loving us. We cannot love like this without God first loving us, without rescuing us. It points us to the cross. It points us to the amazing love of God showed to us on the cross. Jesus says there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his his friends. We read this and see we have such great reason to be glad that God's love is for us in that way. Man. We should also read it as forgiven people ready to repent and obey. If you're reading this and saying, patient, check. Kind, check. Doesn't boast, check. I never do that. (laughs) Then you are not looking close enough. Maybe we should get together, your kids, your friends, your spouse, your roommates, your neighbors, and say, tell me the truth. The story might be a little different. And an exercise that I've heard others say is that, you know, when you see the word love, substitute it for your name. Pete is patient. Pete is kind. Pete does not envy. That exercise doesn't make me feel better about myself. It makes me feel worse. That's not a good exercise at all. (laughs) I see more reasons in my life of why I need a Savior when I do that. You know, the checklist is not titled, Things We Should Do Well. The checklist is titled, Reasons Why We Need a Savior. You know, in your bulletin, that's the title of today's talk, and it seems so weird when you think about the love chapter, and it's titled, Reasons We Need a Savior, but that's what this is all about. The application is not, you know, okay, now everybody, this is what we need to do. This is the person we need to be. Let's go and love. First and foremost, we look at this and say, this is not me. I need Jesus because this is not me. I need him to love me, to be patient with me, to be kind to me because this is not me. And when we know that we're loved not by our works, when we know that we're loved by the loving grace of Jesus Christ alone, you know what? We can confront these issues. We can confront these things with Not with shame, but with courage to work hard at it. Because of God's love for us, we can say, that is not me. God, help me to be a loving person like that. Because we read it, not as people who base our salvation on how loving we are to other people. We base it on people who are sinners in need of God's grace. To restore us, to redeem us, to love us, to forgive us, to be patient with us. You know, some of you are here and you don't know Jesus. You maybe are not a Christian. And you're not a Christian because you don't love Jesus. And let me tell you, you cannot be a Christian if you don't love Jesus. And you should see how God has has displayed His love for you. I want you to leave here knowing that this is how God has displayed His love for you. This is a portrait of His love. He made you. He knows you. He calls you by name. He's been patient with you. He's given Himself for you. He has a plan for you. See your need for a Savior who does not keep a record of your wrongs, but is forgiving and loving and kind. You'll never see a love like this. I became a Christian when I realized that the love of God was so different than any love I had ever seen before. That a girl had ever given me, that a parent had ever given me, that a friend had ever given me. When I saw a little less dim of the love of God as it really was, I knew it was like no love I would ever seen. And I'm here to tell you, you will never see A love like the love of God. An ounce of God's perfect love is greater than any love you have ever seen. Even in the people who love you really, really well. No one loves you like Jesus. Do you remember those faces I wanted you to think about? Those faces, those people in your life? God wants you to start with those people. Have you ever wondered why, when you're struggling with a relationship, why it's hard to get close to God? And you ever wondered why, when you were really kind of far off from God, it was really hard to love other people? Isn't that interesting? It's not by accident that that happens. You see, loving other people is not more important than loving God. Loving God is a first and foremost commandment from God, to love Him. And the second is like it, to love others. They go so hand in hand. This is a relationship so intimate, so close, that our love for God and love for others is so close that they will forever be directly related to one another. That it is impossible to love God and hate our brother. And when we hate our brother, it is very hard to draw closer to God. And God says, first... Don't come to me. Leave your offering. Leave your gift. Leave what you've come to bring me as worship and go and love your brother and then come back and enjoy me. God said, I love you. And I know that you're not like me. But I want you to be. And I'm going to continue to fill you, to help you, to pursue you, to, re- to encourage you and guide you. And if you think of those people, and you might need to go to somebody and you might need to say something similar. And it, has, it can be simple, but it needs to be heartfelt. And you can go to this person and say, I do love you. But I know that I don't love you like Jesus. But I want to. And I'm sorry. Isn't that great? Doesn't it feel great to be in that? To not have this shame, but to have this courage. To recognize that, that, we, can, that we do love people in our life, and yet we don't love them as well as we should. And to recognize that it's, that it's okay to fail in that way. To be honest, to say, I'm not like this, but I want to be. I need God's help. I need your help. I need, I need to be diligent in this. To not feel the shame and the guilt and say, oh, it's a lost cause. I I can never be like Jesus. I'm just going to be like the best I can, the best version of myself. God wants so much more from you and from me. And when we do that, when we look in our heart and see our need for God's love, our need for repentance, our need for his help, and our love for others, we begin to see the love of Jesus a little less dim every time. A little bit more clearer. And that's what we we want to do. Why are we here? Why are we here as a church? Why do we come and sing? It's because we want to see Jesus a little bit more clearer, a little bit less dim in our life. And that's good, and that's what God has for us. So we repent, we ask for forgiveness, we pray for guidance and comfort. And we go out and we love people with the love of Christ. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.